not sure if you know who I am, but I'm about to rule the world. Wow, uh, <laughs> yay. But there's one problem. There's a human, has a mustache, just like you. <laughs> Do you think I know every human being with a mustache wearing an identical outfit with a hat with the letter of his first name on it? <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> Bowser is coming. Together, we are going to stop that monster. How? Look at us. We're adorable. Oh, I got this. No problem. Yes! Come on, Mario! Our big adventure begins now! Ah! Get it off, get it off, get it off! There's a huge universe out there. With a lot of galaxies. They're all counting on us. No pressure. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Welcome back, LifePoint family. Uh, guests, if you're new here today, my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. We're thrilled that you're here. We always say this to our new folks. If it's your first time here, a couple of things. One, there's a QR code on the chairs in front of you. We hope you'll utilize that resource today, uh, lpguest.com. You can use the QR code or you can just type in lpguest.com. But that's basically a guide for you for the morning. Bunch of helpful resources there about our church. Uh, there's a guest information card if you wouldn't mind taking 60 to 90 seconds just to fill that out sometime. You can do it right now as I talk. That would be fantastic. Give us some feedback on the morning, but we'd love to connect with you before you, before you leave. And also the message notes are there. So everything that we're going to have on the screens this morning, the passages of scripture, the statements, notes, all that's there. LifePoint family, all that's at the LifePoint Ohio app. And then secondly, if you're new, I always feel kind of extra compelled during this series to explain what the heck is going on uh, because it's not normal for us to have popcorn and candy and uh, play movie trailers, but in this series, which we've done for a long time, we, in a sense, go to the movies together and we talk about uh, really how every movie contains a message. Uh, we go straight to the scriptures, we teach the gospel and preach the gospel like we always do, but we use these films as sort of a launching point. And it's also an opportunity to try to hopefully disciple us as believers. If you want to follow Jesus, I think one of the things as we follow Jesus is we want to grow in spiritual maturity and we want to grow in discernment and the ability to watch entertainment and recognize entertainment is never just entertainment. It's always teaching us something. And to ask the question, what is it teaching? As I watch this, as I consume this, as I'm on social media, as I'm on the streaming platforms, as I go to the movies, as I watch these things, what is it teaching? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it beautiful? Where are the echoes of the gospel? Where is it simply flatly not true and maybe not helpful to my life, my mind? and my soul. And so that's what we're sort of doing in this, in this series. And today we're looking at uh, Super Mario Brothers uh, movie. 
It's a fun little film. I enjoyed going to the theaters with my children watching this and listening to my kids laugh out loud in the theater. But Mario and Luigi are part of an Italian heritage family in Brooklyn, and they're very uh, close brothers. They're very devoted to one another, and they start this plumbing business called the Super Mario uh, Brothers, and uh, they end up in their plumbing adventures, if you want to call it that, they get sucked into the magical world, right? Into this magical world through a green warp pipe. It's all very throwback. If you grew up playing Nintendo, right? Either the original Nintendo or Super Nintendo or N64, right? Any of these games, like I did, it was all very nostalgic. They get sucked through the green warp pipe into the Mushroom Kingdom, specifically Mario into the Mushroom Kingdom. Uh, Luigi goes into Bowser's Kingdom and he's captured there and so they have to go rescue him and they also have to fight Bowser. Honestly, I can't believe I'm saying all this on a Sunday morning, but uh, they have to fight Bowser. Bowser wants to take over the world, and so Mario uh, teams up with Princess Peach and the Mushroom Kingdom to defeat Bowser. And there are a ton of themes in the film that we could run down and chase down this morning. The one I want us to really look at and run down is, is a little wrinkle in the film that uh, I think maybe caught most of us by surprise because as far as I know, it's not necessarily in the, the games, though I could be wrong, but Bowser is in love with Peach. So, so Bowser, and I use love loosely. That's what we're going to look at this morning. He, he, in the film, proclaims he'll sing ballads about how he loves Princess Peach, and he is desperate to marry her. He wants her to marry him. The, the, the issue is she obviously has no interest in him at all, and he's evil, and, and his love, I use that term, right, sort of quote-unquote, his love for her is possessive, manipulative, domineering, coercive, and demanding. In fact, at one point in time, he says, you're right, marry me or else I'll kill everybody that you care about and destroy the mushroom kingdom. Will you marry me? And, and even, as a, even as a child, you could watch that, I think, and sort of go, you know, he's using the word love, but I feel like he means something else. He's saying the word love, but it doesn't seem to me that that's what love is or that's what love does. Something about this love seems spoiled, perverted, something that it shouldn't be. And yet that's what he he uses and he expresses that. So today we're going to look at that. We're going to stay right there and ask that question. What is it that characterizes genuine love? And specifically... Love between people, between human beings, and not just or even primarily in the romantic sense. In fact, even as I say, what is it that characterizes love? Part of the difficulty in answering that question is how many different ways we use the term love. I love ice cream. I love that movie. I love my friend. I love it when the weather gets warmer. I love my job. Certainly then, I love my spouse. I love my children. I love the Lord. We use love in a very, very broad range of ways. And so we're going to kind of hone in on this. No, what does love from one person to another? Jesus, right? As, as Jesus followers, one of the primary commands he's given us is to first love the Lord and then love your neighbor as yourself. And as we'll talk about this morning, the connection between being loved by God, the term that's used in the scriptures is agape, Right? His, his selfless, sacrificial love for us, and then the way we are to then love one another 
in that same way. And we want to ask the question this morning, what characterizes that kind of love? What does it look like? Is that love selfish and demanding and coercive, or is it selfless and giving and sacrificial? And there are dozens of passages we could go to just in the New Testament, let alone in the Old Testament. But we're going to go to one of the more famous ones. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, if you have the app, you can open that. If you have a Bible, you can open that or just look at the screens here. But we're going to throw it up. 1 Corinthians 13, usually as soon as you hear that, as soon as you see that, many of us will think of the weddings we've been to. Maybe if you're married, your own wedding. What's interesting, it is completely appropriate for weddings. I use this when I officiate weddings oftentimes, but the specific context is not actually a wedding. This is not directly or specifically about husbands and wives, though it certainly applies to husbands and wives. The context here is the Apostle Paul speaking to an entire church, to the church at Corinth. And he's talking specifically to this group of believers in the church where they are elevating their preferences over the gospel. There is pride in the church. There's this attitude of, I like it this way, so I'm not really concerned about my brothers and sisters. And so Paul is speaking to, directly to that and saying, guys, this is not what love looks like. One, one author and pastor summarized sort of the situation in Corinth this way. I think this is helpful. He says, Paul basically looks at them and says, your attitudes and behaviors are not how love acts or feels. He goes on and says, the Corinthians were boasting about Men, chapter 3, they were talking about the different people they followed. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. I like the Apostle Paul. And middle, middle, many denominations inside of their church. They were puffed up even in wrongdoing, chapter 5, celebrating some of the things in which they were doing that were wrong. They were unwilling to suffer long and bear all things, and so they were taking each other to court. Lawsuits in the church, that's chapter 6. They were insisting on their own way and eating meat. There were meat that, was been sacrificed, that had been sacrificed to idols. Some believers said, I don't think you can eat that without worshiping the idol. Others said, it's no big deal. But they weren't considering one another in that. Chapter 8, they were acting in rude or unseemly ways. Chapter 11, they were insisting on their own way as they ate their own meal, even at the Lord's Supper. So even in taking communion together, they came in with these attitudes of selfishness and no concern or regard for one another. That was also in chapter 11. And then finally in chapter 12, Paul addresses the fact that they're jealous and envious as they compared their spiritual gifts to one another, thinking that some were really valuable and some not so much. So chapter 13 is not a, it's a wedding day, this is great. It's actually a bit of a rebuke from the apostle Paul to the church of Corinth saying, guys, let me show you what love does. Let me show you what love looks like, what it is and what it isn't, what it does and what it does not. And so this is what he says. First, in the first few verses, he establishes how love has to be really the underpinning for all the other things that we do, how it has to be the chief motivation, that loving God and loving others. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's saying, look, I love that you guys are really passionate about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but if you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you're exercising those things not out of a desire to love God and to love others, not for the benefit of the church and reaching people with the gospel, he says, what does it matter? If you're doing that from a look at me kind of attitude and not from love, he says, well then you're like a, it's like a clanging cymbal 
he goes on in verse 2 and says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. That's astounding when you think about it. We, we read over this too often. The language is so beautiful. I think sometimes we get caught in the, the poetry of it and we forget to think what he's really saying. He's saying, look, if I hear directly from the Lord, I have prophetic powers. If I understand things that are beyond human compre- comprehension and I have all faith such that I look at things and go, man, that mountain is going to move. I believe God for that. He says, if all that's done though, not out of loving others, loving God and saying, Lord, I want to help love my brother or sister, serve them well. If that's done out of a, this is about me, this is about people thinking about me a certain way, he says, then I'm nothing. He goes on in verse 3 and says, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. The Apostle Paul here addresses generosity. He says, guys, if you're incredibly generous, if you and I say, look at how much we give, but that giving isn't done out of, Lord, this is all yours in the first place. I want to love you and I want to help others. So you give me more than I need so I can help others in need. If it's not done out of that attitude, but it's done out of obligation, duty, I mean, I got to give this away, or man, I'm a great Christian because I do this. If I'm doing this for the Lord's approval and not from the Lord's approval that I know I already have in Christ, he says, you don't gain anything by that. If you're doing it to be seen by others, the, Jesus talked about this with the Pharisees, right? They would, give, they would give very publicly just to make sure everybody knew. Do you see what I'm doing? He says, you gain nothing by that. He goes so far as to say, if I, if I give my body up to be burned, he's talking about martyrdom, being a martyr for the faith. He says, if you, give, if you give your life for the sake of the gospel, but that's done more out of trying to be a hero or duty or sense of discipline or obligation, well, I mean, that's what good people do. He says, if it's not done out of, Lord, I love you and I love others. I'm doing this for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. He says, you gain nothing. So, so under this, right, is this, he says, under all of this should be love. That's got to be the underpinning. That's got to be the motivation. That, that's what needs to be marking our lives as believers. And I think really it should cause us to pause. We should read those first three verses and we should pause and we should say, okay, I need to take some time to think about why do I do the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? Even the seemingly good things You will find, if you're honest with yourself, many of the good things that you do in life, you go, I'm not sure the motivation was right for that. It doesn't mean you should stop doing that thing. You should keep doing that thing and you should ask God, will you align my motivation with your heart? Lord, help me to do this out of and because of love. Because I know I gain nothing. I am nothing. It does nothing if it's not rooted in love. Then he describes, well, what does that love look like? How do, how do we know? What, what does it do? What does love do and not do? What is it? What is it not? What marks it and characterizes it? This agape kind of love, the way God loves us and the way we're called to love one another. This is what he says. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. It is interesting, is it not, that the first descriptor that the Apostle Paul uses when he says, let me tell you what love is like has nothing to do with romance or even feelings at all. Isn't that interesting? He says, love is, and many of us would expect 
love is roses and hearts and love is feelings and enamored. He says, love is patient. <laughs> That's the first thing he says about love. I read a fantastic article this week about the word that's used for patience here and how there's another, there's another Greek word that's often translated patience, but that Greek word is usually about circumstances, like you're patient in a traffic jam. <laughs> he says, this Greek word is almost always used toward a person, that you're patient toward people. In the, not just patient in the traffic jam. That, that's, a, that's patience, right? Lord, I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do about it. Help me to be patient right now. But he says this, this word is patience toward people, toward relationships. The idea here is, look, my spouse is frustrating me, but I will choose to be patient. My child is frustrating me. God, help me be patient. My friend is frustrating me. I'm going to be patient. My coworker is annoying me. <laughs> This person has hurt me. This person is a difficult person to be around. And the idea of love, love is not short-tempered toward that person or those people, but it's patient with their failings and their flaws. The old King James, I think, actually captures this idea better. The old King James translates it, charity suffereth long. Charity being the old word for love. Love suffers long. The reality is, brothers, sisters, guests, if you're here today and you don't love Jesus, the reality is when you choose to love someone, you're choosing to bear with them and to love them patiently, even in their flaws, even with their flaws and their failings and their shortcomings. You're choosing to suffer long rather than just look for the nearest exit. You're choosing to be patient with that person. You say, why? Why does love choose to be patient with someone in their shortcomings and in their failures? Well, one, because we recognize we have shortcomings and failures. But two, and more importantly, because that's the way that God loved us. That's the way that God loves us. He is patient with us. One of the most frequent phrases in the Old Testament concerning God is that he's slow to anger and what? Abounding in steadfast love. He is it's the same concept being communicated here. He's patient with us. Patient with us in our failings. Anytime you're in a relationship with anyone, anyone, you're going to find this person has flaws and sin in their life and they are not perfect and that's going to cause you to suffer in some, to some extent. When Morgan and I got married, early in our marriage, I looked at her and I said, honey, I love you, right? <laughs> And I am going to disappoint you. It was a very romantic speech I gave her, right? Like, hey, just so you know. And we kind of had to level set with each other, right? That look, we want to love one another. We'll be faithful to one another, serve one another. And we need to recognize we're going to disappoint one another. We're going to fall short of the standard that God has set for us. We're going to fall short of the ways in which we want to love one another. But part of loving one another means I'm going to stick with you in the midst of that. And not just in marriage, in friendship, in the workplace, in parenting, in relationships. Love is, instead of being quick to anger, quick to frustration, quick to dismissing someone and saying, I'm done with you. Love patiently endures and bears that with them and suffers long. And that doesn't, this is important, that doesn't mean I never, you never say anything to them. 
about their shortcomings or failures. It doesn't mean you never have to painfully end a friendship or a relationship or distance yourself from someone. Slow to anger doesn't mean you never get angry. Suffering long doesn't mean that you never set boundaries. I'll talk about that more later. But it does mean that you're not easily angered, not short-tempered, that you show a lot of grace, and by God's grace, as you follow Jesus, as we follow Jesus, and we, Lord willing, become more like him, we become people who recognize our own imperfections, give grace and latitude for other people's imperfections, and we become people that are easier to please and harder to frustrate. And so Paul goes on, he says, love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This was particularly relevant, this state, these statements, given what Paul had said about the Corinthians all throughout this letter. I mentioned earlier, the Corinthian church was very spiritually gifted. There was no lack of passion for the Lord or wanting to see God move. But there was pride, which caused division in the church. Some of them again saying, I like Peter better. Others going, I like Paul Others going, I like this guy named Apollos. Apollos was a very famous preacher at the time. I really like his preaching. And this led to divisions in the church. Some of them were proud not just of who had discipled them or who their favorite teacher was or favorite apostle was. Some of them were proud about their particular spiritual gifting. Some of them had this attitude looking at others going, why aren't you more gifted like me? Why, don't you, why aren't you more like me? while others were envious and jealous of the ways others were gifted, going, why can't I be more like him or her? All of us have probably felt one of those two things, right? Why can't you be more like, or oh, why can't I be more like? And Paul says, guys, these divisions, in fact, there was, there was such pride and such selfishness, even when they came together to take communion. They would come together and they'd have a whole meal as their communion. And the rich were bringing all their, it seems like the rich were basically bringing all of their sumptuous meal and the poor would come and they would go hungry and there was no thought for one another. So even taking communion, which was meant to be this moment of remembrance and community and celebration of what Jesus had done had become this, some people getting full and drunk even while others went hungry. And Paul says, guys, this is not the way of love. You guys are super passionate. I love that. Spiritually gifted. Praise God. But what you're doing and the ways in which you're acting, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's not the way of love. And then he says, love does not insist on its own way. Instead, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, love considers others before ourselves. Why? Because that's what Christ did. Jesus took on humility, put on flesh, and considered others before himself. Jesus endured the cross for you and for me. And he says, like that, love doesn't insist on its own way. And I don't, I don't know about you, but that's one every time I read 1 Corinthians 13, and I see that love does not insist on its own way, that hits me particularly hard because I think about how often in my own marriage, my family, my work relationships, my friendships, and just in my life in general, how often I fall short of that. It's difficult. It's an area of conviction and repentance probably for all of us. It's easy simply to insist on our own way. It's not irritable. He goes on, says, it's not irritable 
or resentful. The, the, I think maybe better translations. I don't think sometimes those two words carry with it. It's not easily provoked and it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no records of wrong. Some, some versions translate it that way. It keeps no records of wrong. Literally, the idea is it doesn't think on and count up and then hold on to the things that have been done wrong to us. This one, let's be honest, this one is so easy for us to do, is it not? You get wronged by someone and then you nurse that and you hold on to it and you go over it again and again in your mind. And every time you go over it, you're a little bit more the hero, right? Or you're a little bit more the victim. And you just nurse it. And what happens is that bitterness grows. You refuse to forgive and leave it to the justice of God. And I don't, I don't mean this meanly. I mean this in, in the most loving way possible. Some of us are here this morning and you, you wonder, like, why am I so unhappy? Why am I so miserable? Why am I so angry all the time? And part of the reason might be this right here, is that you have been wronged. And I'm not, every one of us has been wronged in some way. You've been wronged. Someone has sinned against you. But instead of choosing to let that go and give it over to the Lord, instead of saying, man, God has forgiven me all of my wrongdoings. Lord, help me to forgive those who have wronged me. You've chosen to hold on to it. And that's so, I, that is so easy to do. I've done it. I've woken up, right? And before my heat, feet hit the ground, it was already going over that situation again. And you're sitting there angry and you're like, I'm having an imaginary argument with someone who's not even here. And you nurse that and you hold on to it and you keep a, a ledger, you keep a, a book of all the wrong, just in case I need that for later. Let me hold on to that. And then it comes out in conversation. You know this is starting to happen when it comes out in arguments and you bring up the stuff from the past or when you get angry, you start referencing or you're telling other people about what this person and this person you're telling has nothing to do with the situation at all. And you realize, I'm not okay. (laughs) You're harboring that and you're holding on to it and you're nursing it. And like the poison that it is, that bitterness is beginning to affect your soul and eat away at your soul. And I would just plead with you today on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ took your sins upon himself and nailed them to the cross, and he forgave you. God, through Christ, forgave you all of your sin, past, present, and future. I would implore you, let it go. Forgive Ask God for the grace to do so. Choose to do so and leave it to the Lord. Let it go and let your soul begin to heal today. Verse 6 says this. Paul says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Sometimes we talk about, we talked about last week, grace and truth and how sometimes those things feel contradictory, but they're not. They're just intention. It's the same way with love and truth. Sometimes we feel like, man, are those things contradictory? No, Love rejoices with the truth. And when we speak the truth, we are to speak the truth in love. We hold those things together. And then he says this in verse 7 and 8. This is how he closes sort of that section. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. One day in heaven, we will see Jesus face to face. And Paul says, he goes on to say, the need for a lot of the spiritual gifts will be no more. 
we'll have no need for the gift to hear from the Lord, right? And speak that, because we'll all hear from the Lord. We'll be face to face with him. But what will not end is love. We will love him and be loved by him perfectly and love one another perfectly for all eternity. Love, he says, never ends. Now, let's comment just for briefly here on bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says love hopes all things. One author says this about hoping all things, and I think it applies to believing all things as well. You say, what does that mean? Love hopes all things is not a summons to be gullible or naive. There is such a thing as shattered trust, and it can be wise in certain situations to keep one's distance from certain people. In general, though, Paul, listen to this, Paul's words are stubborn in their insistence that Christian love find expression in treating people better than they deserve. You might just write that down. Christian love means treating people better than they deserve, beginning with our assumptions and expectations. Do we assume the best of people or the worst? Do we expect more of them than they can ever possibly do? Are we demanding or are we gracious? The author goes on and says, a mature believer is someone who excels in encouragement, in giving the benefit of the doubt, in being, listen to this, hard to offend and easy to please. The posture of Christian love is not skeptical. It's not shoulders back, arms crossed, watching for failure. Instead, it leans in, arms open and ready to cheer, eager to see a fellow believer succeed. That is so powerful, true, and beautiful. It does not mean, Jesus said, be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. It doesn't mean being gullible, naive, and saying, well, I just, you know, I just believe the best of everybody, even when they've proven to me a hundred times over there, I can't trust them. I'm going to trust them anyway. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean, Lord, I want to cultivate a heart that's ready and willing, that's eager to celebrate when somebody succeeds, when a believer succeeds, when somebody repents, when somebody is moving forward and taking steps, and somebody who's really slow to be angry, to be critical, and to discourage. And I don't know about you, but that is very convicting once again for me personally. Paul goes on and says, love bears all things and endures all things. The word endure there literally means to remain behind. So you're staying in the midst of something, in the midst of that relationship, in the midst of that difficult circumstance, rather than just looking for the nearest exit, saying, how can I get back to comfort and ease as quickly as possible? He says, no, love stays. Love stays there. Love endures. You endure hard things. You bear with difficult people for the sake of the gospel. Now, that brings up a great question. Does that mean in a relationship with another person, you never set a boundary? No. Okay, Kale, when do I set a boundary? What kind of boundary? Right? Look, I, I hesitate to say too much on this because the answer is it depends. It depends on the relationship and the nature of the relationship. You have a different relationship to your spouse than you do to your coworker, than you do to your child, than you do to your friend. But here's what I would say. I'll give you two things just to think about. One, ask God for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. And he gives generously without finding fault. When you're in that relationship, you say, Lord, I, I don't know what to do here. Do I need to take a step back? Do I take a step forward? Do I stay right here? Do I do, what do I do? Ask God for 
wisdom. And then secondly, and this one is huge, ask God, Lord, for the grace. God, give me the grace to shift my mindset from saying, what do I need to what's best for this person? Those are fundamentally, I'm not saying they always are contradictory, but they are different. When we start off in the relationship going, well, what do I need? That does not set us up to love well. When we're in that relationship saying, hey, what's best for this person? The answer sometimes is going to be, you know what? Sometimes the best thing for this person is for me to stay right now. And I will endure. And this friend is, they're hurt. And out of that hurt, they're kind of hurting me. But I'm going to stay here. My sense is, Lord, God's given me wisdom. I think they need someone to just love them and stay with them right now. And I'm going to do that. I think that's what's best for them. Other times you may say, look, I have been patient. I have long suffered with this person. And frankly, there's no willingness or even desire to change. It's the same thing over and over and over. And my sense is what's best for them right now is for me to speak the truth and love to them. And that might mean setting a boundary. And you know what? They may not respond well to that boundary, in which case you're going to have to endure their response, which you may not like. And you need to endure that graciously and patiently. But love doesn't just start with, well, what do I need? I'm not saying you never ask that question. I'm not saying that question's unimportant. But love says, Lord, I'm trying to consider someone else before myself, as you did for me. What does this person need? What is best for this person? Now, I'm going to close with a few things here. Let's come all the way back to our question that we started with at the beginning. What characterizes love? What is it and what is it not? Clearly, the Apostle Paul says, is not demanding and selfish. It is selfless and sacrificial. And that's actually one of the biggest things that should confront us. When you open up and you read 1 Corinthians 13, you say, so what does Paul say love is and is not? What does it do and what, what does it not do? One of the things we're confronted with is how hard it is to love someone else like the Lord has loved us. Loving others, here's how I'll put it, loving others is difficult and costly. Loving others is difficult and costly. And that should really strike us and confront us because the cultural narrative that we get from so many different angles is if it's love, it should be easy. Loving someone else should feel good and should be easy. And man, how many of us has that been our experience? Yes, all the people I love in my life, it's just been easy and it always feels good. We know that's not true, and yet that's what we hear over and over. Sometimes that's even what we say to others is, man, oh, if it's love, it'll work out. Whether that's romantically or in a friendship. Children. I love my children. You say, Kale, is it always easy to love your children? No. <laughs> Loving them is great. There are moments of snuggles and hugs and kisses and sitting on the couch and watching a movie together and playing. And love is also long nights. Being up, losing sleep, holding the puke pan, having to discipline Spending a fortune on raising them. <laughs> Every parent knows that. Loving is difficult and costly. You say, do you love your spouse? Yes. There's beautiful moments in that of holding hands and thinking back over the years. There's also arguments. Times you don't particularly want to speak to one another. There's sacrificing for one another. Giving a lot of yourself in order to serve and love that person. It doesn't matter what relationship it is. A friend, a parent, a grandparent a coworker, the stranger on the street. If you're going to love someone, 
especially over the long haul, it's going to require on your part effort, brain space, time, resources. It's hard work. Loving others is difficultly and costly. Loving, genuine love always requires sacrifice. And you might say, well, why is that a good, why is that good? That sounds bad. <laughs> that sounds hard. Why is that good news? I give you two reasons. Number one, it helps with good expectations. When you come into a relationship, part of what I think has been so damaging for us is this narrative of love should be easy. Love should always feel good and it should always just work. Is that we get into relationships and that's not our experience at all. And we're left sitting there wondering, what's wrong with me? <laughs> or what's wrong with them? Why is this so hard? And we get disillusioned and we're tempted to quit because we're like, well, this shouldn't be this way. And the answer is, you, you go, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? The answer is, what's wrong with all of us? <laughs> the same thing that's wrong with all of us. We're sinners who are deeply broken in need of the grace of God. <laughs> so this help, 1 Corinthians 13 reframes this for us and says, look, loving other people is going to be hard. You should just get used to that. <laughs> just get used to that. Welcome to human relationships. But secondly, and most importantly, 1 Corinthians 13 is really good news. The fact that loving others is difficult and costly is really good news because it points us back to the gospel. I'll put a couple of phrases here. One, conviction leads to Christ. Conviction leads us to Christ. Here's what happens when you read 1 Corinthians 13 honestly. The first thing, that you look at it and go, I can't do this. Not well, not consistently. And you can't leave here today going, all right, now here's what I'm going to do. I'll just do this better. <laughs> if you leave here today, I promise you, you're going to be like, Kale, I did this really well. Right up until about noon. And then somebody cut me off in traffic, right? And then, you know, I'll try again tomorrow. <laughs> the first thing that happens is deep conviction. If the Holy Spirit's at work, you read it and go, I fall miserably short of this. You go, well, how's that good news? Because it points us to the one who did not. It points us, it is not saying, look at all the ways you fail, but ultimately saying, look at all the ways that Christ succeeded. You read 1 Corinthians 13, you can basically put Jesus' name everywhere you see love here. Jesus was patient and kind. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Jesus kept no record of wrong. In fact, Jesus took our wrongs upon himself and nailed them to the cross. Jesus put us before himself. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. Jesus endured all things. He endured hell itself so that you and I might be reconciled and made right with the Father. Jesus is love incarnate. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit doesn't crush us. If it weren't for Christ, it would just crush us. Rather, it points us to him to look at the man upon the cross and say, Jesus, thank you that you are all of these things in my place. And Jesus, please help me by your grace and by your power. Love, love other people the way that you have loved me. That's the final thing there in your notes. We receive God's love and we give it to others. Don't, don't miss this, guys. Don't miss this. this. If we miss this, we miss the whole point of the morning in 1 Corinthians 13. If we come away from here reading this going, all right, I'm terrible at love. And that's where it ends. We've missed it. If we leave here going, all right, I'll just try harder. 
we've missed it. But if we leave here going, Jesus, you loved me this way. God so loved me this way. Lord, by your grace and only by your grace, will you help me to love others more like this? Jesus, thank you. First Corinthians, or John chapter 13, Jesus, looking at his disciples, tells them, guys, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. But what does he say? As I have loved you, so you must go and love one another. As I have loved you. Go love one another. You receive God's love into your life. You picture your whole life and heart like a cup that fills up with the love of God. Romans 5, 5 says his love has been poured into our hearts. As you are filled up, you then overflow with the love of God and it's able to pour out into the other people in your life. There's a beautiful scene at the end of the movie. As goofy and silly as it is, Bowser shoots a giant fire stream at Mario at the very end of the movie and it seems like Mario is going to be killed. And it's actually a little bit emotional, right? You've gotten emotionally involved with these characters and at the last minute, his brother steps in. Luigi steps in with a drain pipe and stands between Bowser's wrath and Mario and saves his brother. And as silly uh, an animated film as it is, you watch that scene and something in you wants to celebrate because you go, that's what love is. That's what it looks like right there. The willingness to lay down your life for your friend. And it's an echo of the gospel. You get in that brief moment just a picture. That's what Christ did for me. He stood in the fire for me. He stood in the fire for you. And he took on all of God's just wrath against sin, yours and mine, at the cross in order to save us. Today, fix your eyes on the man upon the cross. Receive his love. Abide in it. Maybe for the first time. For others of us, just the daily walk. Abiding in the love of Christ. And by God's grace, then loving one another. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help in this. We confess to you that we do not love this way. Not, not always, not consistently, not well. Forgive us. Thank you for forgiving us. And Lord, will you help us to love you as you have loved us? Will you help us to love others as you have loved us? And God, whether some are praying this for the first time today or for the thousandth time, may the result be that we leave here loving our neighbors, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, as you have loved us. Because the world will know us by the way in which we love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.